Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello, Economic Rockstars. In this week's episode, I welcome Dr. Rebecca Harding from Delta Economics and RebeccaNomics.com. Rebecca shares with us some very insightful information on trade finance, the importance of trade finance in today's global economy, the limitations and risks of trade finance, and her influencers who have helped shape her views on economics. Her father is sociologist, as well as other economists such as Joseph Schumpeter and Chris Freeman. Rebecca is CEO of Delta Economics, which provides fantastic statistics on trade, and where she hosts a webcast, giving her interpretation of economic events and also interviews other economists. Rebecca has kindly allowed me to feature one of these webcasts in this episode of Economic Rockstar, where the table is turned and Rebecca becomes the interviewer and is joined by another amazing economist, Francis Coppola. You'll hear this webcast at the end of my interview with Rebecca, where Francis and Rebecca discuss quantitative easing and the current situation in Greece. Never miss an episode of Economic Rockstar by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. And why not head over to the website economicrockstar.com where you will find previous episodes of other amazing economists. Trade finance actually is still not growing as quickly as it needs to in order to be able to fuel trade growth in the way that it has done in the past. And it's actually that, we believe, that's holding back trade and trade growth now. Now, the really interesting thing is that some of the private sector, private equity companies are coming in and saying, well, actually, that's a very large amount of debt there. We can buy that debt and securitize it and actually use it as an asset class. What we've done is kind of pioneer, we believe, the way in which big data is used in economics. We're not using social data. We're not using social media data. We're collecting macroeconomic data and applying it to trade. And that's very different. The first lesson in economics I had was my father telling me that the subject was wrong. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honoured to have Dr. Rebecca Harding join me today. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm very, very well, Rebecca. Dr. Rebecca Harding, CEO of Delta Economics, is an independent economist with an extensive background in modelling economic growth, trade, productivity, innovation and enterprise. Rebecca is the author of nine books and has written over 250 articles on economic issues. She has held senior positions in leading academic think tank and corporate organisations, including roles at the London Business School, Deloitte and the Work Foundation. Rebecca has advised the European Union and regional governments and agencies in the UK and Germany on innovation and enterprise policy. Rebecca is a board member of the Society of Business Economists and a board member and trustee of the German British Forum. In 2013, she was elected as a national representative of the European Movement UK. Rebecca holds a BA in Economics and German and an MSc and PhD in the Economics of Science and Innovation from the University of Sussex and writes on her blog, RebeccaNomics.com. Rebecca, I'd love to jump straight in, if you don't mind, and ask you about Delta Economics. You're the CEO of this fantastic online platform that shares fabulous data. Could you elaborate a little on what Delta Economics would provide to their clients? 
Data economics is a different type of data platform to anything else that's out there. So our whole principle is that we provide data that's interesting and useful for people. So the clues in the name, Delta means change. And in economic context, we wanted to change the way that people were thinking about economic data. So what Delta provides to its clients is trade data that has been cleaned and harmonized and that's corrected for any gaps or any errors. So, for example, a lot of economists use the United Nations ComTrade data or the IMF Direction of Trade Statistics for their data on trade. What we've done is we've actually combined the two so that we've looked at what happens with trade globally through the United Nations ComTrade data, but it has a lot of gaps in it. So what we've done is we've reversed the data so that we look at, for example, Saudi Arabia's trade Instead of looking at Saudi Arabia's trade with Germany, we look at Germany's trade with Saudi Arabia because it's better. We've cleaned it up and taken out those inconsistencies. And then we've scaled it up to the IMF direction of trade statistics so that you get a very clean monthly data set on what's happening with global trade. And then what we do is we scale it right the way up to the end of the last calendar month using country statistics. So it's completely unique. So for trade data... It's the best platform in the world because, or we believe it is, we like to believe it is, because it's corrected, it's clean, it's comprehensive, and it covers continents like Africa, so Ghana, Kenya, Ethiopia, all on one platform. Why is that useful? It's useful for the client because they can actually understand if they're moving into a particular market, what the opportunities are, how big the trade sector is in that market, you know, to some extent what's going to happen with trade finance in those markets as well. So it gives them an idea of what the trading opportunities are. Is this available for academics as well? Yes, it is. It's available for everybody. Because I know from personally using data, like say the IMF or the World Bank and so on, there seems to be somewhat misalignments in terms of the data. Um, maybe that's due to the methodology that they apply, or as you mentioned, there are the gaps that exist in some of the data. And you've done all the hard work that academics might have to do or undergrad students would have to do in order to try and clean that up. Do you work with that data yourself and provide reports? We do. Our website has a couple of those reports on there. I also work with the data myself. I write trade views. I write analysis and analytics of what's going on with trade and trade finance. And I always try and connect that with what's happening in markets. And and this is in economic terms, the real difference between the approach that Delta has and the approach that other consultancies have. So we actually view the world from a trade perspective. And trade is important because it's how businesses interact with one another. And very often economists are accused of being at a kind of a 50,000 foot level and not actually thinking about what happens in markets and you know what happens and how that actually affects business day-to-day life. And what we've tried to do And what I tried to do through my writing is connect that 50,000 foot view of the world with what's happening on the ground. And trade is the ideal way of doing that because it's obviously how businesses interact with each other around the world. Your specialism is in trade finance. Could you elaborate on what this is? So trade finance is everything that drives trade itself. So if you look at from a financial perspective, so if you look at the value of world trade, about 80% of that is actually 
financed by banks or backed up by big insurance companies or financed through export credit agencies. It's a huge, huge, huge market. And it grew very, very quickly in the first part of the noughties. Um, so between 2000 and 2009, it was actually growing very, very quickly indeed. And the reason why because it was because you know emerging markets were entering into global trade in a very much more aggressive way. You saw South-South trade burgeon at that time. And so banks saw huge opportunities for financing. And what it is basically is if you are trading with another company in another country, then what you need is some kind of bridging finance, some kind of finance between the gap when you put your goods onto a ship or an aeroplane and when it's received by the person in the other country or the business in the other country and paid for. So you need some financing gap some gap finance between those two points. And that's what trade finance is. So it's understanding the size of that market and then the implications of that market. So it's it's a huge sector that people actually don't talk about unless they're specialists within banks. But economists very rarely talk about it. And until we came along with our forecasting model, it wasn't included in any economic forecast of trade itself. And what we found is that by including it in trade forecasting, Forecasting, you actually get much more accurate forecasts of what's going to happen to trade. I can only imagine how explosive it's become in terms of the exponential growth over the, since you mentioned the noughties, especially since possibly 07, 08, if there's limitations in terms of financing available between businesses, that this has opened up a whole new market to allow businesses to tap in and be able to finance these goods. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the interesting thing is that as financial markets began to lock up in the run-up to the financial crisis, so you began to see credit conditions tighten in 2006 and 2007. And although trade finance was growing at that point, it, it started to grow at a slower rate. It fell off a cliff in 2009 and then grew very, very rapidly in 2010. And we think that that's actually a reason why the southern nations, so China and a lot of the emerging economies and emerging markets, actually grew so quickly in trade terms in 2010. It was because while in developed markets, the financial system had locked up and credit had locked up, a lot of that trade finance actually moved into emerging Asia and emerging Latin America and financed huge growth there. Now, the challenge that we're seeing now in terms of long-term growth of trade and it's well known that trade isn't growing as quickly as everyone expected it to grow. The challenge is actually how trade finance responds to that. So trade finance actually is still not growing as quickly as it needs to in order to be able to fuel trade growth in the way that it has done in the past. And it's actually that, we believe, that's holding back trade and trade growth now. Who would be the main stakeholders behind this? Are they groups like the IMF? Or would it be businesses, private equity firms? Um, so the whole trade finance market is actually largely driven through very large finance houses. So JP Morgan, HSBC, Barclays, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, you know, BNP Paribas, very big global banks are the ones that are involved on a day-to-day -day basis with the trade receivables, the, the credit lines, the letters of credit, the open account, the working capital, all of that, it actually runs through banks. But what's interesting about 
about it is that you also have quasi-government agencies, export credit agencies, which are partly in the private sector and sometimes supported by the public sector, which also provide insurances. You've then got a massive insurance market attached to it as well. And then you've also got a huge legal sector attached to it. Now, the really interesting thing is that some of the private sector, private equity companies are coming in and saying, well, actually, that's a very large amount of debt there. We can buy that debt and securitize it and actually use it as an asset class. So, I mean, what Delta Data does is it actually allows you to understand trade finance as an asset class as well. And and companies trade securitize it and trade that securitization. So the market is becoming ever more sophisticated in terms of, you know, how trade finance is seen. And it's that capacity for it to become an asset class and, and a tradable asset that actually turns it into something interesting. It appears that in time, whether it's happening at the moment or not, but in time, it appears from what you were saying, that something like this could evolve into a derivatives type of market. Exactly. Well, some of the very big banks have actually set up derivatives and securitization and so on. They have actually set up uh, the process of establishing that as a market. It's still embryonic. It's still not an asset class in that sense. And a lot of that depends on how readily banks carry on with this whole trade finance sector. I mean, it's very prone to geopolitical risk. Mm. And at the moment, because a lot of the banks have actually been stung quite badly by compliance issues over the last 10 years, you know, so we all know the examples of banks that have lent money to Saudi Arabia and then that's turned out ending up with guns in the wrong hands and things like that. What's happened is the market has kind of drawn back a little bit. It's rejigging. There are a lot more conditions around knowing the customer. Um, making sure that the supply chain is clean, making sure that there's risk aversion, you know, that's kind of built into the whole process. So it's kind of meant that a lot of emerging economy trade finance has been subjected to a lot of compliance procedures, which have made it very much more costly. Once that process has worked through, and our modelling suggests that that will have worked through by about 2017, then I think the market is ready for it to become a really serious asset class. Would you worry in time, given that it's evolving into, say, a derivatives asset class and you have a lot of these banks like JP Morgan, would you worry that there might be some kind of implosion, especially with trade finance being somewhat in its infancy in terms of exploring the types of alternatives that might exist in terms of growing exponentially? Could there be a situation whereby we have possible defaults in terms of businesses not paying other businesses or something not working out as well? I think I think you you're right on the money actually. I think this is a market that doesn't realize how important it is and it's driven by a lot of the, it has it has trade associations attached to it, it has government agencies attached to it and it has big banks attached to it. There is very 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 little data around all of this. And you know Delta has started to provide the engine behind all of that, but even our data is is embryonic in terms of transactions and everything. So we're doing market scaling exercise. We can tell you how big a market is, but you're absolutely right so the problem is not just for individual companies defaulting it's also for whole countries actually having poor risk ratings in terms of their 
capacity to be able to provide guarantees. So, I mean, if you're looking at Greece at the moment, it being topical, you can look at Greece and you can say, well, actually, over the next year, Delta is forecasting that the likelihood of Greece being able to access trade finance for imports in or a company to access trade finance for exporting to Greece is going to fall by about 7%. Now, if that happens, that then has a further knock-on effect on, on the people in Greece, on the Greek economy, etc. That means that, you know, you actually get more sovereign risk default as well. Um, so the thing about trade, and, you know, economists know this from a trade theory perspective, is trade is seen as being this thing between countries there's that sovereign risk and there's this business risk as well so it needs far more regulation it needs greater formulation as a proper asset class and then it needs proper risk scoring and risk controls and things because it needs to be treated in the same and credit controls it needs to be treated in the same way as any other asset class would be Yes, we can always account for the possible risks and uh, the known risks that may exist there, but it's the unknown unknowns that we'd be worried about. And exactly. as you mentioned there, the geopolitical risks, who would have thought a few years back that you could have a default from a European country since the euro was established? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this this whole issue of sovereign default and a developed nation defaulting on, on its debts to the IMF. I mean, you know, we are in globally uncharted waters completely. And you look at what's happening in China at the moment. Chinese stock markets falling quite significantly. And a lot of that is about economic fundamentals. And a lot of this is visible through trade. So China's trade growth has halved in the last two years. So we were looking 2012, 2013, we were looking at about 7.5% growth in trade each year. Last year, 2014, it was 3.8. And this year, we're forecasting it'll be about 3.5%. Now, that's a, that's got massive consequences. So what we're actually seeing is contagion that spreads through the trade system these days, rather than through the financial system, or rather, through trade finance, trade is the vehicle through which financial contagion can spread. To be honest, I wasn't really aware of trade finance and the significance of it. I knew that for hundreds of years, you had companies like Lloyd's who would offer insurance for businesses who were exporting or importing with one another in terms of the products that they're actually selling. I'm sure Lloyd's has gone into this type of business model where they have offered some type of insurance like a derivative that would try to cover some of this finance risk. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a massive, massive, massive market and it's very, very complicated. And, you know, it's worth about, we, we estimate it's worth about 7.4 trillion annually US dollars. So that's a massive amount of money. There are lots and lots and lots of organizations, Lloyd's, you know, the big insurance companies, they will all want to be putting security behind the money that they're backing up. So it is something that, and the derivatives market will be an important component of all of this. I'm not saying it's not developed. Of course, there are ways of creating securities against all of the trade finance. It's just that it's not something that economists talk about. It's not something that is mainstream. It's a whole area that everybody was very excited about immediately post-crisis because it was seen as a way of fueling long-term economic growth through trade. Everybody got very excited about it. And, you know, so I, I'll be 
quite honest, some of the work we started doing on this was because our clients were saying to us, this is what we're really interested in. What can you tell us? But because of this sort of economic and geopolitical risk that has characterised the last two years because of Europe and because of the slowdown in Asia, we're seeing the attention come away from it. And so the speed at which it's becoming a mature market actually slow down. I can only imagine with the commodity sector that there's been huge growth and this has fueled, as you mentioned, the market for trade finance. And there's more emerging markets like those markets in Africa and India, Brazil, if you want to use the acronym BRICS. They've exported and have imported a lot of these commodities. Is there a worry that with a lot of these commodities that are traded on derivatives markets do not actually get delivered, that that particular data might affect trade finance data? Or is this trade finance data actual data that's been put up in order to accommodate for the payments of the commodities itself? Um, So there's very little transactions trade finance data that's out there and that is a problem for the market that's the reason why it's very slow in turning into something that is a a properly securitized market because everybody talks about trade finance on a global scale the limitations around the data are huge and there are one or two people who are starting to do it, including Delta Economics. But what we're finding is that we can do market sizing. Taking it down to the individual transactions level is very difficult because it's something that, you know, the banks have that information and they don't necessarily want to share their client confidential information. That's quite understandable. So understanding the risks that are there and the costs of non-delivery, etc., really not understood. But the one thing I would say is that it's not just commodities. So commodity trade finance is one aspect of it, but you're also looking at global supply chains. So a lot of trade finance is actually financed on own account by the big global corporates. So again, it's very, very risky. If you're a big company like Siemens, you are actually putting on your own open account you're putting a huge amount of financing behind delivery and export to, say, a Brazilian market for the engineering and the electronic engineering behind tunneling equipment or something like that. You need to work with a great complexity of suppliers to deliver a particular project. You're putting up the senior debt, if you like. That then has to be financed both through you as a corporate and through your banking arrangements as well. So there are risks on global supply chains as well. And then you've also got huge infrastructure projects, which are a big part of economic development. Now, we're seeing a lot of those infrastructure projects actually lose their trade finance as well as Asian markets slow, because those are markets that are risky if there isn't the degree of growth anymore. So some of those projects are starting to slow and that has a big impact on the trade finance market. It's amazing. You offer an unrivaled time series and real-time trade data across 200 countries and 12,800 sectors globally. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yes. It's macroeconomic big data. And I mean, just really to point to some of the challenges that we've had, 
trying to tell a group of economists that they need big data like this, and you know, you can understand an awful lot from a big data set like this, is very, very difficult because economists, quite rightly, are suspicious of big data. Quite rightly, you know, you can prove anything with a decent econometric modeling system. And if you have too many data points and too many things in your data set, then maybe you're going to come up with specious correlations and things like that. What we've done is we've structured the data very carefully and it is only trade. Now we can do this, we can multiply these effects out across other macroeconomic variables as well. But what we've done is kind of pioneer we believe, the way in which big data is used in economics. We're not using social data. We're not using social media data. We're collecting macroeconomic data and applying it to trade. And that's very different. And you spotted a gap in the market, as such as you pointed out earlier on in this interview, whereby there were gaps in data from the IMF. And you brought all of these types of data together to give us this more sophisticated and workable data that economists can use. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you. I'd love to know what brought you into economics. <laughs> um, what brought me into economics? Okay, I was taught economics by my father when I was a kid, and he's a sociologist. And an economist who is taught by a sociologist is quite an unusual thing. Um, he started off with the fundamental principle that economics is wrong because people aren't rational. So the first lesson in economics I had was my father telling me that the subject was wrong. I'd come a term late to studying economics. So the lessons that I had before I started my sort of introductory courses were from my sociologist father. So I then went in with this kind of sceptical view. And I found that it was just enormously challenging to treat economics is you know at its very base wrong and it gave it, it gave me a different perspective on economics um i came in at a very exciting time as well you know the whole conflict between monetary and fiscal policy the rise of financial markets and the dominance of financial markets um you know transformation of the world at a time towards the end of the 80s when there was a big debate between pushing down inflation and, and boosting economies through fiscal policy very similar to now so I came in at a time when there was kind of a, a retrenchment of economics back into its monetary roots. That was really interesting. The sort of Thatcher experiment had been running for, for 10 years. But I also got very interested in the long-term perspective on economic growth and how you turn economic growth not just into how you measure monetary variables, but how you actually measure real economic variables. So things that are actually based in the way in which businesses operate. So things like foreign direct investment and, and population demographics and innovation and skills. And I became very interested in that and how you model long-term economic growth from those types of perspectives and then how that plays out at a business level. So I've always had this slightly outside of economics perspective, which has given me my own unique brand of economics, I think, which is not mainstream, but actually allows me to have some very mainstream perspectives. So, but allows me to look at those mainstream perspectives from a different angle. And can we call that type of economics Rebeccanomics? Rebeccanomics, indeed it is. And you have that blog, Rebeccanomics.com? 
Absolutely, Rebecca. Um, so I've got my new blog. Um, so it's only been going for a little while, but it's my new blog. So yeah, I hope, I hope I can start to change the way people think about economics a little bit because it's important that people see it as a tool and as a vehicle for something that will help people understand the real world rather than as an end in itself. I think economics is exciting when you look at it as a way of understanding, understanding the world rather than as a way of understanding economics. It must have been at that particular time being taught by your father, a sociologist, but also at a time where you had monetary and fiscal conflict. Who would your main influencers be or would you be more wide ranging? I'm very wide ranging because I have a very eclectic intellectual background. So I was taught by a sociologist. Some of my big influences when I was at university were in geopolitics and international relations. I've done a lot of political science and a lot of philosophy as well. And then, of course, I have an economics and a maths and a language background. (laughs) So I'm a bit weird. Um, I call myself a hybrid. But I think if I look at the big influences on my thinking over the years, I'd have to say some of the big sociological theorists like Durkheim, um, I'd say Marx as well, actually help you understand an awful lot about human instincts and how markets work. Now, you know, without any politics, I'm very independent. I don't bring politics into anything. But then from an economic perspective, I'd have to say that people like Chris Freeman and Carlotta Perez, a lot of the founding fathers of the economics of innovation and long-term growth have been very influential on my thinking. So you'd then say people like Schumpeter as well, obviously J.K. Galbraith. A lot of those thinkers have had big impacts on, on the way in which I think. And if I look at influences now I actually I actually think economics has kind of lost its way and by taking a more since the financial crisis you know the basic theory of economics got it wrong during the time of the financial crisis so we actually need to look at economics in a very different way now so we need to be far more multidisciplinary far more imaginative and actually far more entrepreneurial about the way we think about economics and I guess I'm learning to plough my own furrow having taken a lot of influence and a lot of expertise from a very broad range of people. And do you have any recommended book that you would like to share with our listeners that could encapsulate what you just said? Um, yes, it's a, it's a book called As Time Goes By. It's a book that looks at long-term productivity and it was written or, or co-authored by Chris Freeman and it really is a, a study of why innovation is important in understanding long-term economic growth and it comes on the back of a long, long, long series of publications and work that Chris Freeman did all the way through his career and it was kind of his valedictory book, if you like. He died a, a few years after it, it was published and and that to me is really influential because it says in the long term you have two types of productivity you have productivity which is related to you know the number of hours worked and what you get as output but that's actually a very short-term productivity in the long term you should actually be looking at competitiveness between countries and looking at total factor productivity. And that type of growth is zero over time because it measures the type of way a whole economic system responds to changes in innovation and big long waves of innovation. You know, so you have productivity growth around the introduction of a new technology, it levels off and then it falls back. And that helps you understand how over the long term big economies adapt to the process of technological change. And it's a really fundamentally important book, in my view. 
And I believe that productivity would be highly correlated with trade finance too. Quite possibly, yes. Um, And I think correlating productivity and trade is very interesting because if you look at productivity in a pure hours per work basis, then obviously that's the price basis of trade. But if you look at trade as actually a measure of the competitiveness of the country, then of course it's actually a proxy for productivity anyway. Rebecca, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you. You can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Delta or you can find me on RebeccaNomics.com and I'm on LinkedIn and then you can link through to my email from the Delta Economics website, www.deltaeconomics.com. And can I recommend to my listeners as well the webcasts that you have on your site, Delta Economics, and they're also available on YouTube, are absolutely phenomenal. You have a fantastic guest like Francis Coppola join you on these webcasts and they're very, very insightful. Amazing information there. Thank you. You can find all the links to Rebecca on economicrockstar.com forward slash Rebecca Harding. Rebecca, thank you for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Thank you very much indeed. Bye. Bye. Is it okay if I insert one or two of the sound bites from the webcast into this audio? Of course. That's fantastic. That's amazing. In this webcast, recorded February 2015, Dr. Rebecca Harding and Francis Coppola, Associate Editor of Pieria, discussed the effect that quantitative easing may have on the European economy and some of its likely consequences for businesses. They also analysed issues surrounding Greek debt and weaknesses in the Russian economy. Enjoy. Delta Economics is forecasting a major fall-off in European trade during 2015. We're seeing a decline of 3.7% in intra-European trade, suggesting that there is a major weakness in the European economy and particularly in Europe's demand that is going to affect uh, the value of the euro and is going to affect the outcome of a lot of conversations that are going on at the moment. Given that Europe was founded on the principle of free trade, It's a very good starting point for any discussion about the future of Europe. Now with me to discuss this is Francis Coppola, who is the Associate Editor of Piria and who also has over 12,500 followers on Twitter. She's also my first female interviewee on these webcasts. Francis, are we seeing something major happening in Europe at the moment as a result of quantitative easing? Are we likely to see the process of European recovery start from here on in, do you think? I honestly don't think so, and I think that is borne out by the remarks of other people since QE, indeed even before QE started and now it's, it's underway, um, that with very, very low bond yields, yields already, it's difficult to see that it would have the kind of portfolio effects that it has had in America, for example, the most likely channel through through which it could operate would be through depressing the value of the euro. But realistically, that's going to help external demand outside the union, uh, the, the euro, more than um, trade within the eurozone. After all, they're all using the same currency. Mm-hmm. So depressing the value of that currency isn't going to help them trade with each other. Mm-hmm. It will help them trade with the outside world. And that may help. But with a, a problem with falling demand within the eurozone, I can't see QE is going to help with that hugely. So what do you think would help? Um, the eurozone. I mean, we, we, we've seen 
a lot of discussion around the need for um, national governments to follow a programme of austerity. Mm. So presumably they're not going to be able to spend any more money. And yet, if there's falling demand in Europe, then potentially there's a need to spend more money. So how do you see that, how do you see that playing out? Well, there are governments and there are governments. There are some governments that really don't have any fiscal space, and unfortunately that includes Greece, which thinks it does but actually doesn't. So it will be interesting to see how the debt renegotiation goes. Mm. Um, But there are places in the Eurozone that do have fiscal space that don't need to be adopting the austerity pose that they are. And their tendency to do so is actually dragging everybody else down. So I think that there is room for a a more relaxed fiscal stance in some places in Europe, and that would help. So you're talking about Germany? I'm not just talking about Germany. I think Germany is the biggest. Mm. But there are other countries as well that also have fiscal space and could relax more. So um, Mark Carney has been, um, in the past few weeks, particularly critical of of Germany and the austerity policies. Do you feel Mm. like actually the whole of Europe ought to loosen up a little bit as the time come for Europe actually to focus very much on its demand issue? I think that's important because the problem with structural reform, we absolutely accept that structural reforms, particularly in Eurozone periphery countries, are needed. They do have to liberalise their their labour markets and and, uh, remove trade barriers and things like that. They do have to do that. That's actually extraordinarily hard to do when your GDP is collapsing. Mm. I'm I'm inclined to quote Keynes on this and say actually you need need your recovery first then you can do your reforms. So do you think quantitative easing is in and for itself going to create inflation? No. Um, I think there's very little evidence that quantitative easing causes inflation. You only have to look at Japan. What it may do is slow the path of deflation, because mm-hmm. after all, we actually have outright deflation in the Eurozone, yeah. the Eurozone as a whole, but also in individual countries within the Eurozone are very deflating a lot more. And it may be that it will slow that, but I don't think it will restore... Um, inflation to the kind of 2% target that the ECB wants it to get to. Because mm. I can't see that, with, like I said, with, with bond yields as they are, I can't see it's going to have that sort of effect. So let's focus a little bit on um, what happens in the wake of the Greek election. Now, negotiations are underway. There's been a lot of fairly fiery rhetoric already. Um, how do you see the potential for... Um, Greece within Europe playing out? Do you think Greece will stay in Europe or do you think Greece will leave? Will it leave the Eurozone and not the European Union or will it have to leave both because of the compacts that it's already signed? How do you see that playing out? Greece itself doesn't want to leave. That's very clear. The euro is immensely popular in Greece. Uh, Membership of the EU is popular in Greece and arguably more popular in Greece than it is in Germany. So if Greece leaves, it will be because it's forced out, not because it chooses to leave. I think anybody who thinks that Syriza will choose to leave has misunderstood what they're after. They don't want to leave. They want reform. Mm -hmm. They want the the Eurozone to change its stance. And in that, I think they are tacitly backed, and perhaps will be less tacitly backed, by some of the other governments in the Eurozone periphery. It's been very interesting, the kind of levels of support there have been for Syriza's stance mm. on some things from, from other parts of the Eurozone. So it may be that there'll be a bit of a popular movement towards saying, let's loosen this up a bit, let's get, get some recovery, let's get some demand, and then we talk about um, structural reforms. I think the idea that Syriza has is that they can offer um, 
commitment to structural reforms, for example, to improving their tax collection, which heaven knows they need to do, mm. um, in return for debt forgiveness and relaxation of austerity rules. The trouble mm. is, we have played that scene before with Greece, mm. and I'm not sure how credible that commitment will be. So what are the consequences of further contagion? Because what you're essentially arguing is that if Greece stays in, it will renegotiate its debt. Some people are arguing anyway that the debt isn't as big or as substantial a problem as perhaps everybody thinks it is. So to some extent, this is about how the risks of Greece actually renegotiating play out across Italy or Spain or Ireland or Portugal and whether or not the euro can actually hold together. Because after all, the euro is a byproduct of what Europe was first established for, which is a free trade area. So how is all of this going to work? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because of the concessions that Greece has already had on its debt, it's actually paying less on debt service than, say, Italy is. So clearly, if it renegotiates yet further reduction, there's going to be other governments saying, hey, what about us? I mean, Italy's debt debt is a considerable burden on their economy. Their growth is very, very low. They're running primary surpluses, and their debt, debt to GDP is still rising. So, you know, they would have a case for saying, well, what about us? You know, we are burdened by debt as well. So I think there is a little bit of a, of a question about whether an actual debt renegotiation is possible because of the implications it has elsewhere. It would be nice to think that we could have just a, a, a write-down generally, mm-hmm. restructuring write-down, maybe um, extending much more, maybe much, much lower interest rates out in ad infinitum or whatever, to try and get some demand going again. I'm not convinced that the northern countries will want to agree to that precisely because it's kind of opened the floodgates to a lot of countries saying, but we've got debt problems too. The main feature of Europe in the post-war period, apart from the free trade area, has been a political process to prevent war in, Mm. in Europe. Now, Europe is under pressure not just because of its major economic issues that it has at the moment, but also because it has a neighbour in Russia that's causing it an awful lot of problems. Those problems are going to be political and economic and represent a huge risk to the European economy and also to external strategy. Now, do you think Europe as a political entity is actually threatened by that? I do, actually. And it's interesting that, again, the the, the flashpoint seems to be Greece, which, as a Balkan country... I think doesn't entirely know which way to look. Mm-hmm. So part of the problem, the, the Europe, European, Europe's problem with Greece, is that Greece is sitting in the Balkans, which Russia is very interested in, mm-hmm. and, and is already um, building relationships with Russia. It was one of the first things that Syriza yeah. did after they were elected, was actually meet with Russian representatives. That won't have gone unnoticed. So from a trade perspective, the reason is obvious. Yes. Um, it's to do with oil. Uh, Greece's major export is oil. It's about ten times higher than any of its other exported yeah. sectors. So from Greece's point of view, it's always had this geopolitical conflict, if you like, with Turkey to become a major oil export hub um, yeah. into, into the Middle East and North Africa. We know that the Greece economy is shaky. We know that oil prices are falling. But we also know that Russia itself is a fairly unstable partner at the moment because of its own economy. We're seeing that having a very profound and negative effect on European, particularly German trade. How do you see that? I would agree. I think that I mean, Russia's trade relationship with 
with Russia have been very strong and we are seeing serious risk I think to the German export-led model mm. because of the possible collapse of those exports in the next year um, because of the political instability and just general um, unfriendliness shall we say and the sanctions don't help. Do you think that the sanctions are more damaging to Europe or more damaging to Russia? At the moment it's clear they're more damaging to Russia. Um, the weakness of the Russian economy is not entirely due to oil prices. A lot of it is sanctions. And not only the sanctions that have been imposed on them by Europe and by the US, but also their response to that, that their own sanctions are also hurting their domestic economy because of their import dependence on foodstuffs, which they've placed embargoes on. So we can say that you know, Putin doesn't particularly mind being brutal to his own population. But Russia has played that game before, and it has not always ended well. So I would say that both um, economically and politically, it's a pretty dangerous game he's playing. And at the moment, the damage seems to be more on the Russian side. But that, I think, will change, because I do think that Germany particularly is at considerable risk. Do you think the situation, just to finish, with Russia... Um, and obviously everything else going on in Europe is likely to create long-term pressure on the euro. Yes, I do. I mean, actually, the eastern border of the EU is pretty unstable, you know, so there are questions about um, the future of the euro in that area, and we've seen the Baltics um, joining the euro, and um, potentially not so much for trade but for protection. We've got Poland thinking about it at the same time as we've got on the other side of the, way, at the western end people thinking about leaving. The, the currency is almost like a symbol of, um, of sovereignty, of stability. And when everything is falling apart around you, currency tends to be pretty unstable as well, and I think that's distinctly possible for the euro. Francis, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.